Chapter 6 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The school which was selected for Oscar Wilde by his parents was a school founded by an English prince, the father of that pretender whom one of the boy's ancestors had helped to overthrow. Possibly it was Speranza's great detestation of the soulless iconoclast, Cromwell, that prompted her to send her sons to be alumni in a house of which King Charles was the founder, patron and benefactor, Portora Royal School, Enniskillen. Motives of economy may also have dictated this choice, for compared with the fees of an English public school, the charges at Portora are very small. There are three terms in the year, and the fees for each boarder, quotes, a considerable reduction being made in the case of brothers, are only £17.10 shillings per term. According to the present synopsis of the course of instruction, the work of the higher forms is mainly directed towards preparation for the universities, and especially for Trinity College Dublin. The school is under the government of the Fermanagh Protestant Board of Education, of which the Right Reverend the Lord Bishop of Cloher, D.D., is the chairman, and amongst the members of which are the Rector of Enniskillen and another Church of England clergyman. It is a sectarian school, for we notice amongst the provisions of the course of instruction there that, quote, religious training is regarded as of supreme importance, the boarders are regularly instructed in divinity, and on Sundays attend the respective Protestant churches in charge of responsible masters. Unquote. From what proceeds, it is easy to imagine the bias with which English and Irish history must have been taught in this school, what Whiggish principles must have been instilled hour by hour into the pupils' minds and what the prevailing opinion among Oscar's pastors and masters on Irish nationalism and the doings of the Young Ireland Party may have been. For instance, one may fancy the views of the Lord Bishop of Cloher, D.D., on the glorious young Meagher. At first, bewilderment must have come to the lad, who had been trained to admire his mother for the part she had taken in a movement which, to the right reverend the Lord Bishop and the rest of the Fermanagh Protestant Board of Education, must have appeared in much the same light as did to the Lord Archbishop of Munster the proceedings of John of Leiden and the other Anabaptists in 1536. Bewilderment would give place to an insight into the insincerity of most political professions, and from this to cynicism and general disbelief would be but one step. Quote, if the gods of our faith be liars, in whom shall we trust? Unquote. Oscar went to this school when he was 11 years old. Lady Wilde's description of him as a wonderful boy who could do anything seems to have been justified by his early achievements at Portora. In 1868 he was already very high up in the school. He had indeed already reached the third class in his first year. It is recorded of him that he got quicker into a book than any boy that ever lived. At the same time he was a great dunce in mathematical class, he has been described by a schoolfellow of his, who is now a most distinguished man, as absolutely incapable of mathematics. In arithmetic he was hopelessly bad, 
and as by the regulations of the school a certain proficiency in arithmetic was an indispensable qualification for the winning of certain prizes for scholarship, it was a usual thing to see young Oscar Wilde, on the eve of entering some examination, being coached in the elements of mathematical science by one of the junior masters. This early incapacity for figures explains much of the recklessness of his afterlife. The careful and parsimonious of this world are by instinct mathematicians, at least as far as the four great rules are concerned. It is recorded of most spendthrifts, on the other hand, that the faculty of calculation is an element lacking in their mental composition. Has the world's history any record of an extravagant mathematician? Oscar Wilde was a big boy, very tall for his age and distinctly heavy of build. One of his schoolfellows said that he used to flop about ponderously. He was not popular with the other boys. For one thing, he never played any games. In later life, he used to say that he objected to cricket because the attitudes assumed were so indecent. He never rode on the lake, and he had for the musketry instructor and the drill sergeant contempt mingled with pity. His manner was very reserved, and he used to keep aloof from the other boys. Another characteristic which made for his unpopularity amongst his schoolfellows just as in later life it raised up against him so many implacable enemies, was the extraordinary gift he had of saying trenchant things about others. He was a very clever boy at giving nicknames. He was the ironical sponsor to the whole school from the Reverend William Steele, D.D., the headmaster, down to the smallest boy in Class 1B. As a man, few wits have ever said cleverer and at the same time more biting things about their contemporaries. This capacity of his, and his ruthless exercise thereof, account for much of the hatred that is still alive against him years after his lonely death. Of one very famous contemporary Irish writer, he remarked, He has no enemies but he is intensely disliked by his friends. Of the son of a famous pianist, he once said, when the fact of this parentage was stated to him, well, I am glad that he has managed to survive it. Of an extraordinary Russian Jew who at various times essayed to fill in modern London the role of a Mycenaeus, a Heliogabalus, and other less worthy parts, and who hated Oscar Wilde with an intensity of hatred that almost made him interesting, declared, He came to London in the hopes of founding a salon. He has succeeded only in opening a restaurant. He used to use this man's name as a symbol of ugliness. As ugly as blank was an expression constantly in his mouth. He described him as a fetus in a bottle. In intentions, one finds many compliments, a rebours, addressed to various of the prominent writers of the time. We are told that Hall Caine writes at the top of his voice, that Rudyard Kipling reveals life by splendid flashes of vulgarity, that as one turns over the pages of one of James Payne's novels, the suspense of the author becomes quite unbearable 
that Henry James writes fiction as if it were a painful duty, and that Marion Crawford has immolated himself on the altar of local colour. These remarks are all very clever, but they are not gratifying to the people about whom they were made, and would not tend to increase the satirist's number of friends. But Oscar Wilde seemed to go out of his way to offend people, not individuals alone, but whole sections of society. What solicitor, for instance, being present at the performance of his comedy The Importance of Being Earnest, and hearing his sneer at the social standing of the profession as it was put into Lady Bracknell's mouth, but would feel a personal grievance against the author for a gratuitous slight. These are the words referred to. Lady Bracknell. Markby, Markby and Markby? A firm of the very highest position in their profession. Indeed, I am told that one of the Mr Markbys is occasionally to be seen at dinner parties. Elsewhere, every stockbroker gets an unnecessary wound to his self-esteem. Indeed, few of the professions escape the lash of satire which seems prompted merely by the contempt of a man professing to voice aristocratic and elegant society, and its alleged disdain for men and women who have to work for a living. He carried his imprudence to the extent of insulting journalists with tedious insistence, thus fouling the very trumpets of modern reputation. There are many points in Oscar Wilde's career which allow of a comparison between him and the great Napoleon, and this deliberate delight in provoking enmities, this sheer reckless and uncharitable combativeness, is not the least striking characteristic common to both. In both men it arose from a delusion as to the extent of their powers, from a spirit of prepotence, from an almost imprudent contempt of the aggregate force of the individual adversaries whom they so joyfully and so willfully raised up against themselves. This policy of mischief did not succeed in the hands of Napoleon. It was therefore not likely to be more successful in the hands of Oscar Wilde. The latter was fond of reading the Maximes of the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, and might have remembered to his advantage that the epigrammatist said that the man who thinks that he can do without society makes a mistake, but that the man who thinks that society cannot do without him makes a still greater mistake. Although he is remembered at Portora as having been very clever in giving nicknames to others, none of his schoolfellows can recall what was his own particular sobriquet. He seems to have been generally known as Oscar. As to his brother, Willie, he was known as Blue Blood. He was not a tidy boy. He had inherited some of the paternal carelessness about his appearance, and having one day been remonstrated with for the umber of his neck and hands, declared very proudly that his skin was dark, not because it was dirty, but because of the blue blood in the veins of the wilds. This anecdote might have been left unrecorded, but for the fact that it shows that the wild boys held a high opinion of their social standing, and may explain Oscar's subsequent determined efforts to establish himself in London society, as also his contempt, referred to above, for people whose blood was not blue, and who had to work for their maintenance. 
and here it may once more be repeated that the exigencies of this biography make it impossible to discard any fact on which friendship or reverence might plead for silence when that fact can serve to throw light upon the complex problem of the character which we are engaged in studying. Already in those days, young Oscar Wilde showed that fondness for distinguished attire which ever marked him in life. He is remembered at Portora as the only boy there who used to wear a top hat. It was always a very fashionable hat of the latest style. All the boys at Portora were provided by school regulations as to the outfit with one black silk hat, but this was for Sunday wear only. Oscar never discarded his. He was always very well dressed and wore his hair long. He had a good wisp of hair, is said of him still in Enniskillen. He did not appear to be very friendly with his brother Willie. Quotes, he was very superior in his manner towards Willie. The latter was much more popular with the boys. The little boys at Portora especially had the greatest affection for Willie Wilde. Even in those early days he had all the charming talent de societe, which afterwards won him much success. He used to tell stories to the children, and he used to play the piano for them. Oscar was considered exceedingly clever in literature, that is to say, in his knowledge of books. At the same time, the future author of Intentions never showed any superiority in composition. He never stood out in essays, remarks one of his masters, who adds, Oscar Wilde was never looked upon as a formidable competitor by the boys who went in for examinations in Portora School. His conduct was uniformly good. There was not a breath of a complaint about him in any way, except some short time before he left the school, when, as one of his schoolfellows relates, he got into an awful row with the headmaster. He had cheeked old Steele something awful. That there was nothing of the decadent about Oscar Wilde in his school days is the unanimous declaration of many men who were boys at school with him. He was a great reader and assimilated what he read in a remarkable manner. He used to get through a book with a speed that astonished everybody, and what he had read thus rapidly he used to remember. He read nothing but English books, and these were generally classical novels. He displayed no particular efficiency in French in those days. He had a great fondness for handsome books and choice editions. When he came so prominently before the world as an aesthete, relates a don at TCD, we all tried to remember any indication that he had given as a lad of a taste for beautiful things, and the only thing that we could recall in this connection was that he always had most expensive copies of class books. He had, for instance, a beautiful large paper edition of Aeschylus. During his last year at Portora, when he was a lad of 16, his eager thirst for knowledge and his great receptivity were matters of observation and comment. Often when Mr. Purser was instructing the class in history or in geography, Oscar Wilde would contrive by means of some cleverly put question to lead the master into a disquisition on some topic on which he desired to gain information. The subject in hand would be forgotten. The master, 
ever prompted by his pupil, would unbosom himself of his store of learning. Sometimes the whole of the hour would be thus absorbed. At other times the master would bring the discussion back to the subject of the lesson, and then it was a sight to see the lad all alert, thinking and planning how, next day, he would turn the master once more onto the question in which he needed instruction. Questions often as abstruse as the relative definitions of nominalism and realism. In arithmetic he made no progress at all while at school, and many boys remember the efforts which Mr Purser used to make to cram him with the elementary rules. It was, perhaps, in the competition for the gold medal, which is the great distinction at Portora, that Oscar Wilde displayed his peculiar capacity for mastering the contents of a classical book. In the We Were Woke, says one of his competitors, which was on the Agamemnon of Aeschylus, he simply walked away from us all. He gained 25% higher marks in this examination than the nearest to him. In October 1871, Oscar Wilde matriculated at Trinity College, Dublin. In the matriculation examination where he obtained the second place, his marks in the various subjects were as follows. Parentheses, the maximum number of marks obtainable in each subject was 10. Greek, two papers, 8, 8. Latin, two papers, 8, 7. Latin composition, 4. English composition, 5. History, 8. Arithmetic, 2. His total was thus 50. The total obtained by another Portora boy, the gentleman who is now the junior bursar of Trinity College and who ranks as one of the most distinguished classical scholars in the country, was 65. On the second day of the examination, where the subjects were the higher classics, Oscar Wilde obtained 46 marks, whilst the boy who had so outstripped him on the previous day in the rudiments only obtained 36 marks. Oscar Wilde's neglect of the rudiments was always a feature of his character. He is registered on the matriculation book of Trinity College in the following terms and under the headings given. Matriculation entry. Johannes Mallet, Praelector Primarius. Dies Mensis, October 10. Admissorum Nomina, Oscar Wilde. Qualitates, P. Fidei Professiones, I.C. Patres, William. Patrum Qualitates, Physician. Nativitatum Loca, Dublin. Aetatis Anni, 16. He was at that time just within six days of his 17th birthday. At this time of his life, therefore, Oscar Wilde displayed side by side with a brilliant capacity for reading and understanding the classics a not-quite first-rate knowledge of the elements of classical knowledge. He was undistinguished in Latin composition, which exacts this mastery of the rudiments, mediocre in English composition and unsatisfactory in arithmetic. It is related of Emile Zola, it may be remembered, that he was rejected at his examination for the baccalaureate degree for inefficiency in composition. During his year's attendance at Trinity College Dublin, his conduct was irreproachable. He left this college, says one of the dons who was a fellow student of his, 
with the very highest character. Beyond the foolish remark of his, that invitation of a fellow undergraduate to come to his father's house, which has been quoted above, not a single thing is remembered against him. It was for this reason, no doubt, that no official cognizance was taken by Trinity College Dublin of his public disgrace. His name was not deleted on any of the honourable records on which his capacity, excellence and industry had inscribed it. At Portora Royal College, on the other hand, a resolution was taken by the Fermanagh Protestant Board of Education in virtue of which the inscription of honour of his name on the stone tablets of the schoolhouse would have been erased, when, mirabili dictu, it transpired that outraged nature herself had forestalled the Fermanagh Protestant Board of Education in the execution of this salutary sacrifice. The slab on which Oscar Wilde's name was inscribed in letters of gold had cracked right across the ill-reputed words. Nature had effaced the name. In a less enlightened place, amongst the ignorant and superstitious Irish who are not Protestants, the circumstance might have been hailed as a miracle. He was considered a highly gifted, amiable young man, likely to win a high place as a scholar. In the various college examinations he continually distinguished himself. He was first out of 14 in the first rank in the Michaelmas Prize Examination, 1872. In Hillary term, he was third of the first rank. The gentleman, now a Privy Councillor, who was Solicitor General under the last Tory administration, was an undergraduate of the same standing as Oscar Wilde, and with the other junior freshmen competed in the same examinations. He did not, however, emerge from the second rank. In later life, these two men were to be once more in fierce competition, the fiercest competition, perhaps, that has ever been waged in the Old Bailey Court, between a witness for the prosecution and a counsel for the defence. And here, too, Oscar Wilde was to hold the superior rank. It has been stated that the barrister has admitted that until towards the very end of his cross-examination of the prosecutor, he felt that he had had the worst of it all along. He was just about to sit down when an answer of fatal insolence and folly brought the whole of Wilde's splendid defence of himself crumbling to the ground, gave an opening to his more patient adversary and exposed himself to devastation and ruin. This cross-examination of Oscar Wilde in the Queensbury trial is still eagerly studied by advocates as a lesson how a barrister should act when brought face to face with a hostile witness of such consummate readiness, power and nerve. The barrister's triumph in this case was a complete one, but the reason for that was rather because the witness had become intoxicated with his own triumph throughout, lost his head in consequence of this, and in an imprudent moment destroyed the whole effect of his previous answers. The report teaches what patience can do, and a knowledge of the rudiments, and in that sense is a triumph for the counsel. He might well have lost his head. He did not. He waited and watched, and in the words of a barrister who was sitting in court at his side, 
pounced like a hawk upon the witness when the long-waited-for opportunity arose. Amongst certain men prominent at Trinity College, Oscar Wilde was held an average sort of man, and surprise was expressed when he came to the front. Such surprise can only have proceeded from that innocency and ignorance of the things of this world, which are the most beautiful traits in the character of the deeply learned. Success in the world, the acclaim of the populace, do not go to the modest and retiring scholar. It is an age of advertisement, and even the greatest talents must conform to the commercial exigencies of the hour. One may see any day in any of the big public libraries the shabby, hungered, half-blinded man of great learning and knowledge, elbowed by the secretary of some popular novelist who is collecting facts for his master. The secretary is well-dressed, well-fed, and shines with the reflected light of his employer, who, very probably, earns in one hour more than the great scholar can gain in a week of laborious days and nights. In a letter written by Lady Wilde to Mr. O'Donoghue, she begs him not to omit to mention, in writing a biographical notice of her, that both her sons were gold medalists, a distinction, she said, of which they are both very proud. Oscar's gold medal was the Barclay Medal, this prize was founded by the famous Bishop Berkeley, who denied the existence of matter, and of whom Lord Byron wrote that when he said that there was no matter, it really was no matter what he said. It was possibly from a desire to be consistent with his principles that the bishop left so small a sum for the purpose of this prize, that the Berkeley gold medal is not materially one of much value. As a distinction, however, it is highly prized. The subject in which candidates were examined in 1874 was The Fragments of the Greek Comic Poets as Edited by Meinecke, and the prize was won by Oscar Wilde. It will illustrate to what financial straits the poor man was put even at a time when his name was in everybody's mouth that in 1883, after his successful visit to Paris, and while he was lecturing all over England, he was obliged to go to the magistrate at Marlborough Police Court to make a statutory declaration concerning the loss of a pawn ticket which was the voucher for Bishop Barclay's gold medal. In the books of Trinity College, there is no record of the marks earned by the various competitors who entered for the Barclay Prize in 1874. The mere fact that this was won by Oscar Wilde is registered in the records of the college. With regard, however, to the scholarship which Oscar Wilde had won in the previous year, full particulars of his various markings are to be found. They are of some interest as illustrating the state of his mental capacity in the different subjects in which the candidates were examined. Oscar Wilde's marks in the various subjects were the following. In each case, ten was the maximum number of marks obtainable. We were woke Thucydides, eight. We were woke Tacitus, seven and a half. Greek prose composition, five. The examiner in this subject was Mr. Stack, quotes, a notoriously hard marker. 
the best marks given were six and a half, which were obtained by Joseph King, who, however, only got the last place but one among the selected candidates. He was ninth, while Oscar Wilde was sixth. Greek translation, seven. This was the best mark given. Greek tragedians, questions on, seven. Latin comedians, questions on, seven. Latin prose translation on paper, six. Latin prose composition, three and a half. Demosthenes, five. Ancient history, seven. Greek verse, passages on paper, five. Greek verse composition, one. Here Mr. William Roberts was the examiner. He was a, quotes, character as a varsity don, a very hard examiner. In this subject, most of the candidates scored no better than Oscar Wilde. Some got no marks at all, a plump duck's egg figures against their names in the Trinity record. One or two got two marks. Messrs Montgomery and L. C. Purser, who were first and second in the final classification, each got five marks. Greek we were woke, Mr. Tyrrell examiner, six. Latin we were woke, Mr. Tyrrell examiner, five and a half. Translation from Latin poets, four. English composition, six. This was the highest number of marks scored in this subject by any of the candidates. Latin and Greek grammar, four. In the final result, Oscar Wilde got the sixth place out of ten selected candidates. Joseph King, who was considered the cleverest man in the college, was placed ninth. The following is the complete list of selected candidates in their order of merit. Malcolm Montgomery, Louis-Claude Purser, Richard Hennessy, Thomas Corr, Goddard Henry Orpen, Oscar Wilde, William Ridgway, George Thomas Vanston, Joseph King, Arthur McHugh. An examination of the marks obtained by Oscar Wilde sets forth that, while still weak in the rudiments, he had made great progress in English composition. He was to make still greater progress in the event. The Trinity College scholarships, like the gold medal, lack in that materialism which the bishop denied. They carry with them no great emolument. A TCD scholar obtains rooms in the college at half the usual fees charged to students. He has no fees to pay for tuition, and he gets his dinners for nothing. But there is no income attached to the position. Quote, Oscar Wilde never held his scholarship at Trinity College, one learns, as he preferred to go to Oxford, where better things are to be won. In the following year, accordingly, he went to Oxford, won a demiship at Magdalen College of the annual value of £95, tenable for five years, and matriculated at Magdalen on 17th of October. He writes in De Profundis of his entrance into the English university as the great turning point of his life. I want to get to the point, he writes, when I shall be able to say quite simply and without affectation that the two great turning points in my life were when my father sent me to Oxford and when society sent me to prison. It is possible that when he wrote those lines, he was thinking that if he had never been sent to Oxford, 
the extraordinary latent madness which had brought him to the terrible place where he sat might never have been roused into fatal activity for there is no denying it oxford which is the finest school in the world for the highest culture is also the worst training ground for the lowest forms of debauchery it all depends on the character of the student his early home training his natural propensities his physical state his religious belief oxford produces side by side the saint the sage and the depraved libertine she sends men to parnassus or to the public house to latium or the lenicinium the dons ignore the horrors which are going on under their very eyes they are wrapped up in the petty concerns of the university hierarchy they are of men the most unpractical and least worldly while possibly their deep classical studies have so familiarised them with certain pathological manifestations that they really fail to understand the horror of much that is the common jest of the undergraduates oxford has rendered incalculable services to the empire but she has also fostered and sent forth great numbers of men who have contributed to poison english society it is very possible that if sir william wilde had not sent his second son to oxford but had left him in ireland where certain forms of perversion are totally unknown and where vice generally is regarded with a universal horror which contrasts most strongly with the mischievous tolerances that english society manifests towards it oscar wilde would now be living in dublin one of the lights of trinity college one of the glories of ireland a scholar and a gentleman of universal reputation let any oxford man who remembers his undergraduate days who remembers the things that used to be jested about there and the common talk at the wines about this man or that ask himself when he has condemned oscar wilde whether alma mater might not have been to blame in part if not in toto for the tremendous and terrible metamorphosis that was worked in oscar wilde's character admitting that the young man who left trinity college with a spotless reputation really did develop in so short a time into the dangerous maniac such as he afterwards came to be considered the man who approaches the study of this extraordinary degeneration of character admitting the common aspect of the oscar wilde of later years to be justified in a scientific spirit and without bias cannot fail to feel the gravest suspicion that oscar wilde was to a very large extent a victim of the oxford educational system of the oxford environment to the same dangers as those to which he succumbed any impressionable lad is exposed who starting with no strong moral sense his native virtue weakened by evil example at home is immersed in a year-long course of study in which in the finest language that the world has ever voiced men and women are glorified who in the present day would be considered monsters fit only for the stake and wherein almost divine poetry are celebrated passions and acts 
which society and the church now point to as the very abomination of desolation. In a pathetic letter which Oscar Wilde wrote to a friend of his, after his release from prison, he said, I have still difficulty in understanding why the frequentation of Sporus should be considered so much more criminal than the frequentation of Messalina. It is, moreover, a well-established pathological fact that the men in whom certain aberrations develop with the most hideous fecundity are men of great scholarship, whose moral sense has been warped by studies in which they have come to identify their environment with that of the men and women of antiquity. In scholarship, Oscar Wilde progressed with surprising rapidity. His career as a student was a most successful one. He took a first class in moderations in the Honours School, Trinity Term 1876, and two years later, in Trinity Term 1878, he took a first class in the Honour Finals. Yet he was never a reading man, and was rarely to be seen at his books. End of chapter 6